0: Hey, welcome back to another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Strohl here with Kevin Krosky. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. Wealth advisor, certified financial planner at True Wealth Design. Tyler's got the week off as we bring Kevin back in for a fun episode. And although uh, I, I was a little, I was a little taken aback when I saw the headline for today's episode. Kevin, you sent it over to me, and I said, "No more Tina. What happened to Tina? I thought we were going to be." Mourning the loss of someone, um, but no, it's that's not exactly what's happening on today's episode. Uh, welcome back, my friend. It's good to talk to you once again, Walt. It's uh, it's it's great to be back. You know,
1: I just had a flashback. Um, I remember the first scary movie that I saw was Freddy Krueger, and I don't know, circa eighty four, eighty five, and uh, Freddy's first victim was a blonde girl named Tina. I know oh. you're, I know you're a younger millennial than I am, and I'm not a millennial. Um but
0: Walt have you seen Freddy Krueger? I Nightmare on have Elm Street. Not. It was one of those movies that I saw a lot at Blockbuster or Hol- our our family went to Hollywood Video because it was closer. Um and it was it was always there. Like I've seen tons of those kinds of movies but just like it came out just a little too soon for me to then by the time I got to be the age to watch that those types of movies to then actually consume it. But like I kind of know the character, know the idea. But no, I don't remember Tina from Freddy Krueger.
1: Yeah, so I um, <laughs> I just looked it up. Uh, it was 84, which I probably saw it around then. And I'm thinking here <laughs> of being a parent of uh, an almost five-year-old and almost 10-year-old. And I was you know, about eight at the time. And uh, like, where were my parents? Why did they let me watch this thing? Or did they? They probably didn't let me. I probably, uh, who knows. But I I remember after I watched it, my we didn't have much growing up. And my basement was, uh, or excuse me, my bedroom was in the basement of our house. And, you know, the basement was partly finished And after I saw that movie, I just remember walking, having to walk through the unfinished part of the basement to get upstairs. And it just, it creeped me out. And I thought (laughs) thought Freddy Krueger was hiding in the unfinished part of the basement. And there was like a cold cellar and all kinds of like creepy stuff that you had in a circa 1940s home that wasn't, you know, the nicest. And (laughs) the light switch did not work at the base of the stairs. It only worked at the top of the stairs. So,
0: Oh, that's right out of a movie plot. Yeah, For
1: for many months, I got quite a workout just sprinting up those stairs (laughs) to get the hell out of there.
0: So, I love it I love it for me that that was taking out the trash for me it was always that that long we had a long driveway and it was that long walk out to the end of the driveway and then feeling like something was coming for you and then sprinting back down the driveway to the house so I don't know what movie that would relate to but that was that's that's my <laughs> creepy stair uh, come up the stair story so.
1: So no more Tina. So, no more um, Tina. so, so Tina, Tina, Tina. So Tina uh, has been a, a more popular saying at least kind of pre, particularly pre-2023. But there is no alternative. And as I researched it, apparently it's been around for hundreds of years and uh, it's been made popular by politicians. But it was used to really talk about the stock market uh, because bonds were near zero percent. So it was kind of a, a way to justify, like, hey, where are you going to put your money? You can't leave it in cash. You can't put it in bonds. You're not going to get anything there. You know, stocks. You know, there is no alternative to stocks. And and here we are in kind of mid 2023. And I just uh, we just got done um, doing some updates to our portfolio strategies. And when we do that. We write a client letter, you know, kind of detailing our thinking and what's changing and why, and just giving some general commentary. But, you know, this idea about Tina really kind of, you know, came to mind. I don't think I used it in the paper um, or in the client letter that was sent out. Uh, But I figured that's what we'd talk about today, just, you know, kind of the state of uh, the market, kind of an investment update, not really looking so much backwards, but, you know, more so present. And then, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. We're not trying to say that, uh, you know, this fund and we won't even talk about specific funds for compliance purposes. Um, But, you know, we'll just talk about, you know, where things sit in the market and maybe where you're likely to get compensated well for risk and maybe some other places where you aren't. So uh, we'll see where it goes. I'll try to keep it high level, not get too far into the weeds for clients that are listening. Certainly, we did post that client letter to your client vault. Uh, If for some reason you're not using it or don't have it, you know, just send us an email. We'll be happy to to get it to you. And, uh, of course, for any of those non-clients, um, any of the stuff that we're talking about investment-wise, you know, this is just purely for education. You know, for our clients, uh, we give advice, and we're certainly responsible for that, but for, you know, <laughs> but those are, those are very uh, um customized relationships. We certainly know a lot about our clients. And this is just two guys talking, right? Well, it's better That's while. right.
0: Yeah. We'll change the name of the show. Two Guys Talking. I kind of like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> New idea. Well, maybe we won't. But <laughs> no, no, we'll keep it I with Retire Smarter. I like that. It's the tagline now, though. Two guys talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> two guys talking. There you go. Um, so real high level. So again, well, I, I guess we should always start with, you know, why is this important? And you think about... You, know, some of the wise. The show is, I believe. I know I've been gone for a while, but I still believe it's entitled "Retire Smarter." And you know, money is a tool. Um, it's there to support who we are and things that we want to do. Um, it's not just kind of a means to an end. So for the vast majority of our clients, we have financial life plans for them. We understand what their lifestyle is, what that um, costs them to live. We understand those spend expenditures that are more or less important to them, knowing that, in fact, if we did have to cut back for any reason, Certainly, we would not cut back from the needs, but more from the discretionary spending. And then also, you know, that helps to go ahead and provide a framework to do investment planning, making sure we're matching the investments back to the financial plan, you know, overlaying that with tax TaxSmart um, distribution planning as well. And even some estate planning on top of it. So it's really kind of foundational, the financial plan. but a part of that plan is we have to put in return assumptions. Uh, so you need to make some projections. Of course they're going to be imperfect. This is an ever you know ongoing thing. Uh, but it's something that we have to do. Um, so that's that's kind of the why. You know when you're doing the investment work again you're going to need to put some not only assumptions in your plan but then you know when you're actually doing the investment work in action certainly you want to go ahead and try to maximize your return for whatever risk you're taking and a quick aside to that, you know, Walt, I will uh you know how I love to ask you questions, Walt, that um sometimes they're softballs, sometimes they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they're a little more cruel. One, we'll see. This may be one that's in the not category, but Uh-oh. it's been a while, so, <laughs> so I'm, allowed to, I'm allowed to do it. So Dr. Harry Markowitz, do you know who he is? Uh you've
0: mentioned that name before. But no.
1: So Harry Markowitz, um, and the reason why I'm bringing it up, um, really, kind of was
0: that the quiz question, or is this the, just the lead-in? I'm already off track. Yeah,
1: no, that's that's that was the quiz question. Oh, okay. So okay. Um, uh, Harry Markowitz is really considered the father of modern portfolio theory. So he uh, wrote a paper. Uh, I think he was in uh, pursuing his PhD at the time. It was back in the '50s, and it was called portfolio selection. And the reason why I'm bringing him up, by the way, he just passed away uh, within the last week, and he was uh, the ripe uh, old age of 95. But um, he actually won a Nobel Prize for his 1952 paper. And for me, anyway, one of the things I thought was really cool was um, it actually took a few decades to prove he was correct because. Uh, The mathematical theory was in there was so complex that at the time, they didn't have sufficient computing power to prove that he was accurate. Um, So later on, as computers continued to develop, um, proved out that Dr. Markowitz was correct. And then uh, I'm not sure exactly how it played out, but he went on to win the Nobel Prize in economics, uh, I think, in the 80s or so. Now, uh, a lot of people have heard about the efficient frontier, which is really what Markowitz is probably most famous for. For Harry, it was really about, you know, this efficient frontier and creating a portfolio and him having a mathematical framework to go ahead and do so where, you know, for whatever given level of risk, you're really optimizing your return. Uh, And you can kind of solve either way for risk or return, and and that's kind of the efficiency of the portfolio and the efficient frontier. Uh, So that's what he's most known for. He really was a giant in the field, and um, he made significant contributions. And just, (laughs) it was pretty cool to come up with a theory that, okay, you know, I think I'm right, but you know, it took me a few decades to actually be proven right.
0: So (laughs) I'll have to wait for computers to be invented to prove me right. Yeah, that's that's kind of like a really uh, thing to stick your chest out over. That's impressive
1: you got it so uh here at true wealth anyway we think of um asset classes in kind of you know three very broad buckets so i'll start with kind of the the simpler if you will we call them preservation assets so these are it could be cash or higher quality bonds um <clears throat> so we know that and tyler's talked about it on the podcast you know i talked about it back when the banking um fiasco was really kind of front and center uh, in march you know rates have certainly gone up and when you look at uh, cash or other cash like investments, we're getting paid quite a bit today. And a lot of people, I'm sure, have heard about this yield curve inversion. So, Walt, question number two, I heard about it in the news. Two, all the time. Yield yes. Curve inversion. What is the yield curve inversion? High it, level, Walt's it,
0: words. It's the normal yield curve, but inverted the other way.
1: Ooh, that's uh that's uh that's a little fuzzy wuzzy, I'd say, Walt. <laughs> so I did I did ask for it in Walt's words. This could be a new section for the Walt's show. Walt's words, I Walt's like it. Words. I like it. Um so so normally I'll I'll use it this way. So you go and you get a mortgage. I think most people have had a mortgage. And when you go to the bank and say, Hey, Mr. or Mrs. Banker, I need a mortgage, and they come back and say, Okay, Walt, here's a 30-year mortgage and here's a 15-year mortgage. Now, Walt, what can you tell me about the difference between a 15-year and a 30-year? Which one is generally
0: higher? The higher interest rate typically is going to be the 30.
1: Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Sweet. Good job. So, um So that's normally how the yield curve is. As you go out further in time, there tends to be more risk, and thus there tends to be higher rates. Uh, right now, um, and not just right now, but it's been for a while, it's just gotten, you know, quite has quite an amplitude right now where you actually have this inversion and you have short term treasury bills, you know, just a couple months in duration, paying north of 5%. Meanwhile, uh, again, and as of this recording on June 28th, this is kind of when I'm talking about these markets and, and these rates. Um, you have a 10-year U.S. government bond at about 3.7%. So uh, we think of that as um, kind of a term premium if you go out to 10 years. And if you just subtract those two numbers, you basically see that there's a negative term premium for owning a 10-year bond compared to you know a few-month government bond. So about minus 1.4% to be exact.
0: Just so kind of like you- why would you go for the longer the longer term if the shorter is paying better.
1: Yes, and so there's kind of a decision matrix where you could look at that and um and and definitely your you know rates would have to fall quite a bit, you know, at that 10-year level for those 10-year bonds to give a total return and it, I don't want to get Quickly getting down the technical rabbit hole here, so I might have to go back to Walt's words in a moment. But uh, total return is just your your income return, which is you know your your interest uh, in the term of bonds. It could be your dividend income in the terms of stocks, plus the price change. You know whether you're going to something is going to increase or decrease in price. And so you could have in theory, you know, you could own these 10-year US government bonds and if rates went back down to say where they were in 2021 or early 2022, you could actually you know see a change in that yield curve where those longer term bonds would would do better. However, because there is such a steep inversion, um, I would say that that's probably unlikely. Um, also unlikely, at least right now, because of some of the inflation that's you know that's still out there, not just in the U.S. but also in in other uh, countries as well. So, so right now, generally, you know, you're getting paid very well to be in these. I'll call them cash like investments, T bills, cash like investments. Same thing. And we'll kind of use that as a building block. We'll use that and we'll come back to it when we talk about appreciation assets and stocks in a little bit. But in short, there's really only two components that drive returns in in preservation assets or fixed income. And that's term, which we just spoke about. And again, everybody just experienced that term risk in 2022 as rates rose. And if you had bond investments, you saw that that price component of your total return Went down and it went down a lot more and provided total negative returns, even though those bonds or other yield based investments like that did have a positive income return. Walt, um, you might have to start hitting the egghead alert here. I'm, I'm hearing myself, and you know it's crystal in my mind, but I'm getting a little worried here. So uh, you might have to bring yeah, me down it to speak English.
0: It, it wasn't a specific uh, term, but there there were some numbers and phrases that all twisted together. There might have might have triggered the egghead alert.
1: Uh, all right, so I'll, when I talk about the other. <laughs> The other return driver in fixed income i am not going to use numbers so credit not the card that's in your wallet walt credit this but i guess it could be related to your credit card Um, because if you didn't pay your bill then you would technically default on your credit so so there you go so credit is really the risk that companies you know that whose bonds you may own default. Um, And so while term was really kind of the risk that was uh, very present in 2022, Credit was the risk uh, that uh, manifest in 2008 with the financial crisis, and there was a lot of defaults. And just because a company defaults, there's, there's different forms of that. Um, and then there's also tends to be a lot of recoveries, you know, because there's different assets that companies may own. And importantly, when you think of kind of a priority of payments or what sometimes people call the, the capital stack of a company, you know the debtors get paid before the stock owners and so it's a little bit more it's actually can be a lot more complicated than that but in basic principles you know if you're lending money to the company certainly you're foregoing some higher returns that stockholders could make uh, however in the event that things go bad you know and the company gets liquidated or assets get liquidated uh, if you own their bonds, you are going to get paid first before, you know, there's any residual claim paid out to the stockholders. So uh, so term risk and credit risk. So right now, again, the term risk is really negative. And then uh, it depends what you're talking about for credit risk. But um, credit risk uh, is, I think, reasonably compensated in some parts of markets and maybe not so much in others. And the thing with credit, too, is when you do have a bad uh, equity environment like a 2008 or just general equity market sell-off, those credit uh, securities often look a lot more like equities. So if you think of kind of the uh, the old wiggle factor, as I like to call it, or kind of standard deviation, how things kind of move around, a lot of times you can look at these corporate bonds and they're like, oh, oh, man, that's nice. Oh, higher yield than government bonds? Okay, give me that. And then when it hits the fan is really where, you know, that risk is is presented and those credit securities can be marked down quite a bit. So, those are kind of some high levels in the preservation category. But right now, in general, at least within our category, and again, more details in the client letter, but we really like, you know, kind of the short term component because there is a negative term premium and uh, there is some credit components, you know, that we like. However, um, we're kind of, exposing ourselves to those in other, in another asset class. So kind of short term high quality, I guess, is the way that you could say, you know, what we are preferring at the moment within the preservation category. So um, I know bonds are maybe a little bit boring, but Hey, if you can get more than 5%, you know, that's not too shabby. And we think we have some creative ways that we're doing it, which we outlined in the client letter as well. So Walt, before I put a button on preservation, any questions or comments, buddy?
0: No, I I do need to get a new sounder made, just like the Egghead one, for Wiggle Factor for the next time you come back on the podcast, because I feel like that's becoming a go-to mention for you, so... I'm glad we got a wiggle factor mentioned in the show today. Very good. Yeah, there you go. The wiggle <laughs> factor.
1: Rather than volatility or standard deviation, wiggle factor sounds a lot more fun. So I got to
0: try something
1: when I'm talking about these boring investment updates to keep people engaged. So there you go. I'm doing my best. So I, I did go back while we were talking, and uh, episode 85 we did in November 21, and uh, the title of it was what's a conservative investor to do? So kind of in the Tina vein there, you know, hey, rates are low. Times are tough to be a conservative investor. What do we do? And I talked about that then. And um, that also coincided with a client letter that we wrote about some portfolio strategy changes that we were making. And one of the things that we talked about at that time and allocated to was uh, something called, you know, it's more private credit. And on a high level, ever since the financial crisis, a lot of the lending has moved out of the banks and into these uh, private markets or or other sort of lending markets. Um, and that's, candidly, it's happening even more. You know, we talked in March, Walt, uh, with the whole Silicon Valley Bank. And then at, also at the same time, the concern was about, well, hey, these regional banks, not only do they have you know some of the same sort of stresses that Silicon Valley Bank has, but they got this commercial real estate. Oh no, um, you know some of the malls are failing. People aren't going back to work. You know what's going to happen to some of this real estate? And oh yeah, you know these regional banks lent money for this real estate. What's going to happen to the regional banks? So this, there's been a shift really over the last at least 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, where you're seeing a lot of banks get out of the lending business unless it's to the really big companies. And so when you look into the private credit and um, what we will call kind of a subsegment of that in corporate direct lending, these are more kind of the middle market companies that are out there that um, the Citigroup's Bank of America, JP Morgan really aren't lending to. Long story short, right now, if you look at the yields on these, um, and again, I'm not talking about any specific fund. I'm just looking at kind of an asset class in general. The yields are, are close to double digits. Uh, the, what I have in front of me, a report from J.P. Morgan, has kind of the yield around nine percent, and then these these credit investments will actually use you know some borrowing, so they'll use some leverage. So if you put that all together, you're seeing net yields um, higher than that nine percent and into the low double digits now like I said, with credit, um, when you get into an event like 2008, and it doesn't have to be that bad. It's just kind of more of an extreme example of one of a credit event. Um, But inevitably, some companies are going to go, you know, out of business, you are going to have some losses. And even though you're going to be collecting on some assets that are there, you may not get back dollar for dollar. So there could be some losses. And I think it's reasonable to think that Hey, the loss ratios for these funds could even be a little bit larger on a go forward basis than what they have been, in part because the borrowing costs are a lot higher. So as rates have moved up, you know, these are floating rate instruments. And so the, when I uh, talked about this with you in November 21, while the yields at that time uh, for the, those markets were closer to like around 7%, which... May not sound like a lot today, but back then, you know, the 10-year U.S. bond was probably, I'd say, one and a half, 1.6% or so. So rates have gone up quite a bit. You know, this asset class in general has performed very well over the last couple of years. Um, we've talked about this in other client letters that we've written, uh, and even though the rates are higher and these higher borrowing costs are putting stress on the companies because they have higher interest expenses, it still looks like even after expecting some additional credit losses on a go forward basis, it should still provide some pretty attractive returns. So for us, while we're kind of decreasing credit risk in the preservation category, what I'm talking about right now is kind of in a hybrid category, we call it our diversifying assets. Um, and these These could be, you know, private investments. It could be, you know, like what we're talking about from a lending standpoint, it could be private real estate. It could be other assets, too, where, um, you know, maybe traditional stock or bonds, but they're maybe used in a different sort of strategic way. Uh, We think about this as a hybrid between stocks and bonds, maybe like 30, 40 percent risk of stocks in the balance and bonds. So this is kind of where we put private credit. But uh, long story short, um, we've owned it for a few years. We've been very happy owning it. Our clients have been very happy owning it. Uh, We're actually increasing our allocation to it. Um, uh, In part, it's part of the total. It's not just because we like the yields there, but, you know, we're looking and reducing credit risk in the preservation category, going for the shorter term, higher quality. And then at the same time, we're pursuing that credit risk elsewhere in the portfolio where we think we're going to get more adequately compensated for it.
0: I'm starting to understand a little bit sort of this picture you're drawing of the difference between preservation and then this kind of diversifying pocket or or bucket of an asset class is how I think you described it.
1: You got it. We, We think about just a very broad asset class, so diversifying assets, and then you can kind of start winnowing down. Within there, um, and then private credit is kind of a sub asset class of that, and then corporate direct lending is kind of a sub sub asset class, if you will. So, I'm not going to go any further than that, but I think you get the idea. Okay, all right, I had hit you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were trying,
0: you were trying to get the alert, I think, when you said the sub sub class or whatever. I did have a bit different intonation, I will admit to that. You were angling for it, I felt it.
1: <laughs> all right, all right. So the third bucket, the one that you know everybody uh, uh, as well. What about stocks? So we call these appreciation assets. So not just stocks for us, but it could be private equity it could be public real estate. Um, a lot of people don't know uh, if you own a, a REIT, you know, a real estate investment trust say through like a Vanguard or dimensional fund advisor sort of uh, mutual fund or ETF wrapper, uh, that actually tends to have a wiggle factor even greater than most stock asset classes. So we feel that, um, that public real estate is actually more of an appreciation asset than a diversifier for at least in part those reasons. But Here's the thing I, I want people to take away. And and we for our clients, we, we didn't make any changes within the appreciation category. They were um, they were more uh, there there were a lot in the preservation category and some in the diversifying. But within the appreciation category, you think about it this way. We talked about the short-term high quality bonds, you know, treasury bills a lot of finance theory is kind of built on well hey those are like really kind of the risk free assets and so today you know you're getting compensated about 5% for owning that so if i'm going to take more risk whether that's term risk or credit risk or equity risk or other types of risks you know there should be a component you know or a risk premium that i'm going to get on top of that risk free rate and and that changes over time, and it's, it's least in part theoretical or forecasted. You don't definitively know in advance what it is. But I can tell you, looking back over the last 100 years in the U.S. market, that that equity risk premium has been roughly about 7%. So if we look at just from that stage alone, say, okay, hey, historically it's been 7%. You know, the risk-free rate today is five. You know, if I add those two together, 12, you know, is that reasonable? Um, well, broadly speaking, the U.S. market's trading at close to 20 times forward earnings based on what consensus estimates are. And uh, I let's just say that you, you're not gonna get to seven for that and you're not gonna get to 12 when you kinda do those, you know, add those two components together. There's still a lot of clouds of uncertainty that are out there. Uh, there always are, you know, it's just the world that we live in. You know, inflation has certainly seemed to peak uh, by a lot of metrics, but I think there's more of a question, at least here in the U.S. Well, yeah, maybe it's peaked, but how sticky is it going to be? And, and, you know, at what level is it going to stick to if it does for a while? Um, They've been talking about recessions for quite a while now with the yield curve. Uh, The yield curve has been around, you know, for several months now, and um, it's always been right in predicting a recession, um, but there's also only been a few different iterations of that, so it's not like there's been... You know kind of a, a million different examples that we can point to in history there's still pressure in the banks you know with um, some of the regional banks and most notably some of the real estate that's owned in there certainly we still got the war in ukraine who knows what's going on in china those sorts of things so you know markets always discount risk they discount they they factor in this information they put it into prices if we go back just a year ago and if you th- think about some of the headlines you know that were related to Europe after you know, Russia inv- invaded Ukraine. And it's like, oh, my gosh, look at all these energy issues. You know, what are the Europeans going to do when uh, winter comes around? Like, oh, my gosh, it's going to take years. It's going to be, you know, essentially a depression in Europe. And then, you know, you have a lot of innovative countries and companies and they move quickly and the winter wasn't as bad. And some of these known risks turned out not to be so bad. And. And European equities have returned more than the U.S. looking back over the last year. And so it's one of those things where, you know, you don't necessarily have to have like great news to get good returns. Things just have to be less bad. But I guess when we look at this and put it all together, you know, when you can get those sort of double digit returns in the corporate direct lending that we mentioned, when you can get the 5%, you essentially, you know, risk free, if you will you know, in those short-term high quality assets. And there's a few other things that we really like in our portfolios now too. I think it would be foolish to say that, you know, now's really kind of the time to pile on risk. And well, when we talked back in, you know, kind of when the world was still shut down three years ago, you know, and things were like so uncertain. I remember back then we went from like, Hey, we're doing the podcast twice a month. to Like, Hey, things are changing so quick. We got to do this weekly so I can talk to our clients. And, um, and, you know, it was scary back then, but those scary times are often the best times to invest because all of those uh, risks are kind of factored into the market and beat down prices and people behave irrationally. And we kind of leaned into it then. And, and for clients, we said, hey, you know, and certainly this was all financial plan driven, but one, we for those that had risk capacity, um, we ended up recommending increasing risk at that time it was scary to do it obviously in hindsight it's turned out to be a good decision but now when we kind of look at where we are and seeing that there are other alternatives other than stocks and stocks not saying that they're um you know they're overpriced per se but they're they're definitely not kind of screaming cheap and you have some other attractive assets um so now's really kind of the time to go back to what Doctor Harry Markowitz won the Nobel for, and say, hey, you know, we have this new set of information, these new inputs going into our optimization machine to build this efficient portfolio. You know, are we really going to get compensated for the risk of, of of owning equities? And I think the answer is um, probably not as much as what we have in the past. And and that may sound you know fuzzy, but. Uh, candidly forming a portfolio is uncertain you know you're you're always going to want to maintain you know very adequate diversification and we're not saying get out of stocks or anything like that, but um, we are saying that we can get pretty healthy returns in some other asset classes with a lot less risk. So uh, we feel like it's kind of time to reassess, you know, our risk level and just relook at where we are, and what kind of returns we need from the financial plans that we constructed, and really make sure that we're, you know, in the right strategy now and you know at least moving forward for the next you know several months and and maybe a few years. You know, information always changes, but we really feel like this is the time to kind of reassess, and and things are a little bit different, you know, than where they were, you know, just a year ago. They're actually they're quite a bit different. So it's an ever flowing thing, but um, that's what we kind of detailed in the paper. You know, I apologize for anybody that's read it and fallen asleep. Uh, it is twelve pages. Um, yes, we have a lot of engineer clients. I think most of them are reading it, but in a more you know vocal, friendly two guys on a mic sort of way while you know that's that's what's been going
0: on it's a great breakdown it's helpful uh I, you know to full honesty Kevin I can't say I understand all of it um even hosting a lot of shows with you this is high level I can speak from experience in working with other financial advisors across the country that not every firm gets into this level of detail so you guys are unique in that way, in in a very good way, and so it's neat to see all. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you want to be compared to the uh, how the sausage gets made metaphor, but it's kind of a little bit of a peek at that. At what goes through your guys' minds as you put together portfolios and plans for people, and dive into the nitty gritty and look at alternatives and say, okay, the the rest of the world's moving this direction. Is that the right way to go? Should we move in a, in another direction? Sort of the old Warren Buffett uh, quote of when others are greedy, be fearful, and and vice versa. Uh, kind of resonated with me a little bit there with how you were talking about analyzing some things from the past. And so uh, I just like seeing all that calculation going on in, in your head and in your guys' minds. And so I find it very helpful, even if I don't understand 100% of it, it's still great to see where you're heading and uh, where you're thinking. So I appreciate that. I know we'll have listeners who appreciate that as well. It's a wide spectrum. I'm sure we have some that are in, in the Waltz Words camp where we're just having fun along for the ride. And we've probably got some that are pretty high level and would love to spar with you maybe on some points and uh, and have some fun picking it apart a little bit. Not everyone fell asleep reading that letter. I'm sure, Kevin, you had some that were along for the full 12 pages. Uh, but no, great breakdown. Appreciate you outlining that for us. And if you are uh, thinking that you got a question on your mind about something you heard today or something you read in the letter, if you're a current client or if you aren't a current client but would like to talk with Kevin about how that might look and discuss with the team, if you're a good fit to work with one another to revamp your financial plan or put together a true plan for the first time, it's easy to have that first conversation. In fact, you can set up a 15-minute visit with a member of the team, an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team, by going to truewealthdesign.com and clicking the Are We Right For You button. Again, truewealthdesign.com. Click Are We Right For You. You can also call 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855 893 7526. We always put the links and the uh, contact information in the description of the show. So you can find it easily. We'll also have a link in the show notes today for episode 85 that Kevin mentioned back from 2021. If you want to go read a little bit more about that conservative investor, what to do, Uh, although it was two years ago, there's still some helpful information, I'm sure, in that episode to give you some more background on uh, Kevin's line of thinking on things. Uh, But this was great to get today's perspective. Kevin, appreciate you sharing the the shift and this concept with us and look forward to hopefully having you back again soon. I got to get that wiggle factor um, sounder made for the next time you come back so well i appreciate
1: that walt and
0: uh it's uh you know tyler's doing a great job and uh it's
1: good to have a team and even for all these investment you know um ron white in pittsburgh and our pittsburgh office you know he and i collaborate quite a bit on all the portfolios that we do you know aaron siles the cfa tyler's cfa and cfp um we have a growing you know smart motivated team that uh, day in day out we're going to do the best we can for our clients so
0: uh, hopefully that comes out but thank you very much for your help too. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kevin. And thanks for listening to today's show. Again, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. Otherwise, uh, we'll talk to everybody again next time, right back here on Retire smarter.